Welcome to the Shamrock Show. Sit down, have a listen, and go fuck yourself. The Shamrock Show. The Shamrock Show is brought to you by the law firm of Scott Camasar and Stephen Reck. Check them out at stephenreck.net. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-R-E-C-K.net. Also on Facebook. And check out Scott at S-D-C-A-M-S-R on Instagram. It's getting nice outside, so if you ride, make sure Scott is on your side. My guy Scott will take care of you. If you've been hurt or injured in a car accident, motorcycle accident, it's that time of year people are out on the road more and more. If you're in an accident, never ignore it. you got to go to the police. You have to report the accident, exchange information, take pictures, be accurate, get medical attention. You never know when you're going to say something doesn't hurt and then it hurts the next day and you ignore the medical attention. Scott will take care of you. He will get your bills paid. He will get your quality of life back to normal. Check out the law firm of Scott Camasar and Stephen Reck. If you've been hurt in an accident, medical malpractice, wrongful death suit, anything you got going on, fight for the truth, justice, and the American way with the law firm of Scott Camasar and Stephen Reck. Tell them Sean sent you. Well, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to chat with you. Um, I read the secret history of the IRA many years ago, but I just recently finished uh, Voices from the Grave. Yes. And uh, I, thought it, I thought it was amazing. And I thought, you know, there's certain things in there that a lot of people should probably know about, you know, and, and that a lot of people would just be interested to hear about. So I just kind of mm. wanted to, to chat with you about it and kind of tell the story, you know, um, my podcast it doesn't have like uh, an angle. It's not, it's, it's just open format. Whoever comes sure. on is kind of the soup du jour. You know what I mean? I'm not looking to prove any points or come any kind of way, but when I find a story that's interesting to me, if I can see if I can get somebody to, to talk to me about it, it's, it's good for me, you know? Okay, go ahead. I'll be happy to oblige. Cool. Cool. So I, um, my grandparents on both sides come from Ireland um, and my whole life, you know, my grandmother, specifically my mother's mother from Derry, she wanted me to, to go over. And I was always so afraid of making the flight, the thought of flying over the ocean, it, it freaked me out. But I went in 2012 or 2013 for the first time. And I've been back a, a handful of times since. But um, I didn't know anything of the history. And, and then once I got there, you know, I got to Belfast and, and my Aunt Paula, you know, she took me around, she showed me around the, the, the history of of the troubles and you know i just mm-hmm. you know i grew up your, your typical plastic patty with irish grandparents and irish this irish that but i didn't know anything about mm-hmm. it until yeah. i got there and now i've been trying to read and, and watch everything i can because i just found it um so so interesting um you know so that's how i ended up with with your books okay good 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 well i hope you enjoyed them Oh, I mean, tremendously, you know, enough for me to come be a weirdo and search out, right? <laughs> no problem. Um, how, how did you become so attached to the subject? Where are you from originally? Well, I'd like, like, like yourself, I'm the, um, the offspring of um, people who emigrated from Ireland. My, my, my mother was from Scotland, but my father was from the west of Ireland, Candy Mayo. And... Um, uh, he he was born at a time when uh, f- rural families, particularly from the west of Ireland, had little choice um, because of the poverty and the the absence of anything apart from subsistence farming to emigrate. And so most of the family, most of his brothers and sisters, went to United States to far away as San Francisco, New York, Chicago, um, Florida. And the others went to England. And that would be very traditional of his generation and very typical of, the, of Ireland at that time. And he and his, he, he and his brother went, uh, went to England. And that's where I was born. He met my mother, who was from Scotland. And I was born in, um, in, in England. So I went to an English school. But, you know, it was always, there was always an Irish influence there, clearly. Um, um, and... Um, when it came time to go to university, for some reason, I don't know how or why this happened, but one of the places that I chose was Queen's University in Belfast. And that was 1966. And I arrived there uh, that, that autumn. And by the early spring of 1967, the, really the troubles had started 
what had happened was that uh, students uh, had got involved in um, uh, civil rights protests of one sort or another. Um, the unionist government of the day had tried to ban uh, the political wing of, of the IRA, and there were protests at that. Uh, and then the following year, there was the uh, October the 5th March in Derry for full-fledged civil rights, for voting equality and for housing equality and, and stuff, and, and equality and employment uh, and to discrimination, all, all of which would have been very familiar to uh, African-American population in, in, in the United States. Not that there is any comparison between what happened to uh, black people in southern states during the time of slavery in the confederacy and what what happened in ireland it was bad in ireland but it was never quite as bad as uh, as uh, as existed in this country but um uh so we you know i was there i arrived there at a very exciting time and of course that was uh, not just uh, that sort of political radicalism wasn't confined to Belfast or Ireland because you had throughout Europe, you had uprisings by students and you had a near revolution in France. Uh, you had the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations in the United States, you had civil rights demonstrations in the United States and so on. So a very exciting time to be politically active. The difference being, of course, is that in, in Ireland, uh, without going into all the complexities of, of, of the Northern Ireland situation, but it, it was one in which um, it was a gerrymandered state in the sense that uh, there was gonna be a permanent majority and a permanent minority. Um, and um, um, aside from um, uh, protesting and demanding things like voting rights and housing rights and employment rights and stuff like that, uh, you, were, you were up against all the time um, a uh, very strong right-wing unionism, uh, uh, mostly Protestants, led by people like Ian Paisley, who were opposed to any and all, uh, any and all change. Uh, they saw all change. I think probably correctly saw it as dangerous to their own position, um, because their position uh, depended on dominance. You know, and if you challenge that dominance, then obviously you were threatening their their place in the world. And that all culminated in the summer of 1969 with something which was very uh, familiar, I'm afraid, to people in Ireland, and that was these attempted pogroms, in, particularly in Belfast, when um, loyalist mobs uh, supporting the union with Britain, opposed to civil rights for Catholics, um, uh, largely supported by the unionist government of the day with the nods and winks rather than any sort of direct uh, um, uh, active support on the ground and by a police force that was at the very least ambivalent about all of this and in fact in many cases was was pro uh, unionism and pro uh, uh, domination of the catholic population and against the civil saw the civil rights march marches as just the ira in different clothes which of course it wasn't, but they didn't. They didn't have the the ability or the sense to understand that. So that all came to a head in August 1969. You had these huge attempts to burn out and kill uh, Catholics, particularly in in West Belfast, and you had whole areas petrol bombed, whole streets destroyed, uh, lots of people killed, and out of that. Uh, came a resurgent IRA, which uh, until then was regarded, and you know I've, I can tell you this from my own experience, we regarded the IRA in 19, that period of the late 1960s as a bit of a joke, uh, something that belonged in the past and was not relevant. And we were gonna change things through reform and politics and stuff like that. Uh, of course it didn't happen, but um, uh, so the IRA became resurgent. Uh, once the IRA started its campaign, then you had an equal but opposite reaction on the unionist side and they turned to the gun and bombs as well. And that set the scene for the next 20, 30 years of sometimes extraordinary violence. When I think back on, on what we went through and what you experienced and what you regarded after a while as just normal. You know, I mean, I remember lying in, as a student, you know, in 1969, 1970, lying in bed at night and you'd have the window open and it was the summer evenings and you would just be listening to the gun battles going on all night long hundreds and thousands of shots being fired you know it was like living in 
in a, in a war zone at that time. And during the daytime, of course, you had explosions and bombs and you had troops on the streets, you had armored cars. It was a war zone, you know, and that lasted for a long time. Yeah, and then I think that a lot of people, uh, especially like younger Americans or young Americans in general, don't think of that when they think of Ireland, right? They think of rolling green hills and, you know, the stereotypical yeah. Ireland that you see um, yeah. you know, on postcards and, and, and whatnot. Um, just to catch people up real quick, the, you know, when you're talking about the, there was a split because six counties of Ireland were under English rule and there was, you know, you were, it's a tear between the, the, the Protestants, but it was because they were loyal to England, right? More. Yeah. Well, how much did the religion, I mean, I know religion was huge into it, but if they were all non-religious, were there still the same issue? Between yes, it's, it, there, were, there would have been. It was nothing, and this was never a war that was religious war. It was never a, a fight over, uh, you know, religious dogma or, or, or right. you know, how you said your prayers or anything like that. It was about who was in charge and who was running, running the ship, you know. And it, the, the, the history of Ireland at this time and the history of the United States are run in parallel lines. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, the settlements in Virginia, which essentially began in the early part of the 17th century, uh, the same time as slavery began. Um, and that was spearheaded by, by the British who set up, um, um, who planted, as the word was, was used in those days, communities uh, of, uh, of their own people in places like Virginia and then further up the Northeast coast of, of the United States. And that was a foothold. And they regarded the uh, Indians as, as the enemy. Well, in getting closer to Ireland and, and to, to England in those days, uh, the big threat to uh, English supremacy in Europe were the Spanish and French uh, royal families and, and, and their political systems, which were, um, it's, it, which were, were divided largely on, on religious grounds. You had the Re Reformation in the uh, 16th century uh, um, and most of England became Protestant. Uh, most of Europe, particularly France and Spain, stayed Catholic and were loyal to the Pope. And politics in those days was about religion. Um, but the problem for England was that uh, on, its, um, uh, on its left coast, as it were, uh, there was this country which was wild and difficult to travel to and difficult to travel on and to uh, and difficult to control, which was not loyal to a Protestant king in, in, uh, in, in London. And so they did, um, they started uh, in Ireland what they compete, completed in, in, uh, in the United States of America, which was to set up plantations of, of their own settlements, their own settlers. Um, and so what they did in, in Ireland was to bring over uh, tens of thousands of people from uh, Scotland and also from, from Northern England to take over land uh, and set, become settlements uh, and, and establish a political presence there, uh, which would act as a buffer against any threat of invasion of England through the back door through Ireland. The fear was always, and indeed, if you go to parts of Ireland now, you'll see the ruins still there in places like West Cork of, um, of forts uh, and lookout places that were built by the British, uh, the English in those days in order to give them advance warning of a French or a Spanish invasion. And the idea was that you would have these um, pockets or plantations of loyal people, loyal to the British crown, to the English crown, who would at the very least uh, put up a bit of a fight if there was any invasion coming from France or from Spain uh, and might even hold uh, th those areas until such time as a big army could be brought over from, from England. And very much the same type of thinking was involved in, um, in, in uh, the British plantation of the United States of America. You know, the Indian, uh, Red Indians, Native Indians, as, as you would call them now, uh, were regarded in the same light as the Native Irish, as potential enemies, you know. And of course, if you look back at early American history, you'll see alliances between various Indian tribes and the French or whoever, uh, you know, who were ever opposed to the American government. And the same sort of um, factors were at play, uh, at play in Ireland. So the, the idea began, you know, took root and flourished that 
it was in England's best interests to ensure that Ireland uh, was um, uh, dominated by by Britain and by uh, and uh, that led to, uh, as I say, plantation of people, people being brought over and planted in places like Cork and Dublin. Um, and uh, that was the basis of the division that existed. And when eventually uh, nationalists in Ireland demanded and got a, a measure of, of, uh, of, of independence from Britain, the one part of Ireland where this plantation was strongest was in the north, right? Where you had a population of one and a half million, one million were Protestants, the other half million were Catholics. In other words, half a million were loyal to the Irish state, the other million were loyal to the British state. And that led to the partition of Ireland um, and the creation of the Northern Ireland state. And of course, it could only be sustained as a Protestant state in the same way as Alabama could only be uh, sustained as a white only state by keeping, uh, in, in Alabama's case, keeping uh, the, the blacks, uh, the black population uh, down and doing the same to the Catholic population in, um, in, in Ireland. And so when the civil rights movement started, um, there was very, very strong identification on the part of those who took part in the civil rights movement and the leaders of the, the civil rights movement with their America, the black American counterparts. And indeed, um, the, one of the big marches that in some ways people regard as beginning of the, the troubles uh, was modeled on the, the Alabama Selma march uh, that had uh, been led by people like Martin Luther King. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a, a similarity in history and a similarity in developments. Uh, the difference being that in, in Ireland, um, it very quickly uh, turned into the full scale war that we had for 20, 25 years. Uh, you could argue that maybe you, you had a war in America as well, but not on the same. You didn't have car bombs in, in Mississippi. Um, you did in Belfast. That's the difference, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, so going through that, and and I mean, there, there's just so there's so much we could could talk for a million years and never cover it. But um, I've really become really fascinated by this Brendan Hughes character. I mm. think I think that he is. You know, if you're to take him at his word for everything that's that's been said, that he's yeah. absolutely you know an intriguing guy and mm. uh, really key to a lot of a lot of information, um, which kind of comes to these Boston College tapes, which I had never heard of mm. until I uh, picked up your book. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could just tell a little bit about how you got into that and and what happened with those tapes. Uh, well, it's well. First of all, you you know, there, you know, there was also a film based upon Brendan Hughes's book. Have you seen that at all? No. Uh, no. What is it? It's called Voices from the Grave, and it's on YouTube. At least I think it's on YouTube. Um, and if it's not on YouTube, it's on my blog site, which is called The Broken Elbow. Elbow. Yeah. Um, and you should watch that as well. Uh, obviously, it was filmed after after his death, and also the death of a a loyalist leader called David Irvine. We had two of them in the film. Um, so their their parts were played by actors, but their voices were real. They were from the interviews, you know. So the idea the idea that uh, of doing the Boston tapes um, had its had its origin in something which had happened in uh, in the rest of Ireland after the uh, after the Anglo Irish War when when the British finally left that part of Ireland, and uh, and some I think about twenty years after the end of the the, the hostilities in Ireland. Uh, this, the idea was 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 launched to uh, record, uh, in as much as they could, the memories of those people who had fought in in the Anglo-Irish War, and so uh, and this was funded by the government. Uh, a particular a special organisation was set up called the Bureau of Military History, which went out to interview as many uh, veterans of that campaign, going back to 1916 all the way up to 1921 at the time of the treaty. And record their um, their their memories, and of course they didn't have tape recorders in those days, so everything was written down. Um, and we had the idea, myself and uh, former IRA member turns an academic, or Anthony McIntyre, had had this idea for a long time. Well, it was clear that the troubles were coming to an end, 
by the late 1990s. Uh, it's only a matter of how it would how it would come and what the nature of the deal would be. But and we said, look, there's a difference between, or I, I said to him, there's a difference between our situation and the situation that created the uh, uh, archives in the south of Ireland, in, in that the the conflict in the south of Ireland, 1916 to 1921, was only five years long, right? So you could afford to wait 20 years and then interview people because the vast majority of them would still be alive. But our, our, <laughs> our troubles, our strife began in 1966 and didn't really end until the Good Friday Agreement. And even then you could argue they didn't end then until 1998, that's 30 years. So someone who was, um, let's say, uh, a middle ranking IRA member in 1966, 1967, 1968, and would have been 40 years old, but would be dead by that stage, right? And a lot of them were getting, getting uh, close to death. And others were much older. And clearly the longer there was a delay in setting this thing up, the fewer and fewer people there would be around to, to tell their story. So there was an element of urgency there. There was also an atmosphere um, at the time that, um, uh, you know, the, the war is over, right? And it is time now to talk about what happened. Um, and we, we decided that it was still far too dangerous to do that uh, type of pro project, either in Ireland or in Britain. Primarily because there were, you know you you couldn't trust the colleges you couldn't trust the institutions that you would approach to keep things quiet because you know you needed to keep things very discreet. And because you're you're, you're talking uh, kind of different scenarios as well where you're going from what was more of a a traditional war to in the troubles you're talking you know it was still illegal to. to oh yes. Right. Oh, it's so fine. You, you know, telling war, you come back from war and telling mm -hmm. stories is different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Admit, admitting fine. that you're part of a, a civilian bombing campaign, so, that, so to speak, right? That, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Whereas the, 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 there was still a very strong element in the British side, uh, particularly in the Unionist side, which regarded all this as criminality, right? And therefore, you know, there was no closure on criminal acts. You know, the, 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 they would be pursued until until the end, as it were, you know. Um, so we decided there was no way that we could do this project either in Britain or in Ireland because of the, the risk of um, being betrayed, of, of stuff being handed over to the authorities and all sorts of consequences. And we had a friend who was working at that time in Boston College and he came back and coincidentally he said, look, they've asked me to, um, to see if I can find anyone or any ideas that would be worth following that would commemorate or in some way remember uh, the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. And I think Boston College were a bit embarrassed because um, they had they had regard they had they had been very reluctant to identify themselves in any strong way with um, with, with with what was happening in Ireland. And indeed there was a huge row when they invited uh, Margaret Thatcher, to Boston College to present her with uh, an honorary doctorate, uh, and I think she, I think they were forced to withdraw. That was the sort of mentality uh, at the time. But now that the war was over and it was safe to talk about these things, Boston College wanted to make up for lost ground. They hadn't done uh, what they should have done, which was to collect material during the troubles, and now they wanted to make up for that. And they approached this guy and said, "Look, you're going back to Belfast." If you um, have any ideas, uh, talk to people, come back to us and we'll see what we can do. So it just so happened that Anthony McIntyre was his PhD supervisor. Uh, Marcus had spent 20 something years in jail for a murder for IRA. Uh, and in, in jail, he had got himself a first class honors degree in politics. And then he had started a PhD, which he finished on, on his release. Um, so, this guy, uh, this prof professor approached Maccas and Maccas said, well, funny, you should come to me because we do have this idea. So we put the idea to Boston College and they were very keen on it. And of course, we were very, also very concerned to get assurances from them that there would be no chance that this material would be handed over. And we, we got multiple assurances to that effect. Um, and we also expanded the project to include a, a loyalist parliamentary group called the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was 
one of the most violent groups uh, on the on the on the unionist protestant side they wanted to get take part in the thing we also persuaded the police to take part in it so you had this you had three sides you had the republicans you had loyalists and you had the police who were all taking part in this thing um but then you know uh someone found out the way it was it the way that it was found out about uh, was essentially because we we eventually uh, wrote a book about about um, uh, some of the interviews based on um, Brendan Hughes and uh, David Irvine, and we had done that because Brendan Hughes, when he when he gave his interviews to Anthony McIntyre, he did so on condition that it would be published uh, after his death, right? Um, so we felt sort of duty bound to do that, to, to uh, fulfill and honor that promise. And Boston College said, yeah, that's fine, but that's going to look very one-sided. You should really you know, see if we can get any of the unionist uh, and loyalist people to, to participate as well. And so the UVF was approached by Boston College and they agreed. So that's, that's, that was the genesis of the, genesis of the thing. And then, of course, when the book came out, the police in Northern Ireland said, well, we're going to go for this stuff and see if we can put people in jail for Gene McConville's uh, kidnapping in particular. It was this um, uh, yeah, housewife. Mind, and, I was going to say, do you mind telling that story? Because that, that's, that, I mean, that was such a glaring part of the book and, and yes. it's been a part of another book I read. And it's... Uh, you know, I think it's it's a, a really touching and, and important story. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very it's a very uh, interesting story. Um, the, the 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 IRA's version of it is that um, is that um, uh, they, they this is we're talking about 1972 and Belfast in 1972 was like Wild West, right? Um, you know, the IRA would uh, patrol areas like public housing projects openly with weapons, you know, and um, and just like the British Army were, you know, uh, and, um, uh, you know, gun battles were raging every day. The, the, the British um, had a real problem in the sense that they, in order to defeat the IRA, at least to um, reduce the threat coming from the IRA, they, they needed intelligence. They needed as much information as, as, they, as they could get. And that meant going anywhere and everywhere. Right? But anyway, it, it, it so happened that um, one of these IRA patrols was going through Divis Flats, which was a big working class housing estate. I don't know if there's an equivalent that I can think of now in America, but, but really bad housing. But, you know, one of those big, tall uh, blocks of flats and, you know, horrible. Where? Where? Cabrini uh, Project in Chicago. Cabrini Project in Chicago. Yeah, something like that. And... Um, they, they were it was an armed patrol that was going through the, the corridors of, of the place and um, they were using little walkie-talkies. And this little kid said, my mummy's got one of those radios. And I, oh, yes. And who are you? And that's how she was discovered. They raided her home. Uh, they've discovered the radio. And this is that Brendan Hughes's uh, version of events. He was the OC, the officer commanding the IRA in that area at the time, West Belfast. Uh, and she was brought in for interrogation. Uh, she admitted, uh, according to Brendan, admitted being an informer, telling what she knew to the British Army about who was what. What would an IRA interrogation look like to a civilian like that? Well, I, I, it, it's difficult to know. I mean, you know, it could be it could be very unpleasant, I'm sure, you know, uh, but we don't know. Um, we don't know for sure. I would imagine with Brendan, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been like as, as rough as 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 it could have been with other people I can think of in the IRA. But um, it, what he got from her was an admission that she had been passing on information to the British. And of course, at that stage of the conflict, the British knew very, very little about the IRA, you know. When they introduced internment in 1960, 1971, the year before, they were dependent on intelligence files belonging to the police. And it was all out of date. And the people that were arrested were all the wrong people. So they knew they had a huge, big uh, vacuum of, of information and intelligence. And, you know, when you're at that level, you start at the bottom and you work your way up. Right. And what you've got to find out is who's who in the IRA. And then when you find, find that out, you can bring them in and you can either bribe them or threaten them or uh, in, in other ways uh, uh, persuade them to pass on real information about who's really in the IRA. So she was at the bottom of the feeding chain, as it were. She would have been able, because 
the IRA was so open would, to know who was in the IRA because they were walking around the place with guns, you know. Um, so that, that's his version. And the version that he, he, um, uh, he gave ended with him saying to her, we're not going to do anything to you, but if you do go back to doing this type of thing, you can expect the worst, right? So they let her go, primarily because she was a widow and she had all these children. And ten, that, ten, 10 children, 12 children? Ten, I think there were 11 at that stage. One died not long afterwards. Um, so she was, she was set free. Um, and then, um, um, you know, she returned to what she was doing. And we know, um, we, we know what happened later from Dolas Price, who uh, was a, a member of the IRA in West Belfast, who was one of those who took um, this, this, this woman, Jean McConville, across the border to be shot dead and buried in an unmarked grave. And the story that she gave, gave to, boss, to us, to me, was that um, uh, after she was let go by Brendan Hughes, she returned almost immediately to what she was doing before, which was informing. She was regarded- she fi- financial support for this? Yeah, she- very small amount, very small amount. I mean, it, you know, you're talking about the equivalent of $10 a week or something, you know, which if you're a, if you're a, if you're a, a widow and you yeah, have children, kids. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what what happened according to what uh, to Dola's Price's um, version of events is that, um, uh, and again, this is a practice which the British were well used to because they'd used exactly the same techniques in places like uh, Kenya and Aden. Um, they would they would have someone who's an informer put them behind a blanket with peepholes and they would parade suspects in front of them and that the person behind the, uh, the the blanket would say yes no yes no whatever okay and that way they would identify who was in the IRA in other words if she had seen this person or that person wandering around Divis Flats with guns which was very possible then they would be regarded as IRA and then they would be arrested and then they would the the army would then attempt to turn them into proper informers real informers get into the organization so Jim McConville, according to this account, was the sort of the key that unlocked the door uh, and very important to have her. So she was behind the blanket and the, behind a blanket with peepholes, but the blanket didn't go all the way down to the floor. And she had on these pair of carpet slippers. Now, back in the 1970s, Belfast housewives, you know, wore carpet slippers 24 hours a day, you know, yeah. uh, and they recognized her and she had these very thin scrawny legs, right? So she was recognized thanks to her, thanks to her carpet slippers. And so she was again arrested by the IRA and this time again, she admitted that she'd been doing this and she was taken away, um, told that she was being taken to a safe house cross, across the border. Her family would be united with her uh, reunited, a Catholic charity would look after her and make sure that she was uh, that she had uh, money and she had food and what have you. So she went quite happily, thinking that she was going to survive, and of course she didn't. She was taken to the beach, shot dead, and put into a, an unmarked grave. Um, so that was the, that was the Jean Jean McConville story, which is you know a cause celebre and a matter of considerable con- controversy then and now. And how long did that go before that even came out? How many how many years between when she was killed and when this interview came out with Dolores? Well, she was killed in she was killed in December 1972, and uh, whenever Voices from the Grave came out, it was the Legion of Mary, not Brent Brendan Hughes was the uh, uh, Brendan Hughes had given the account um, that you know was in Voices from the Grave, and that was the first that people really knew what the full story was. They knew that she'd been disappeared. They knew that she had uh, been probably been killed, but they didn't know what the circumstances were. And they were, they, they were, you know, she wasn't the only one who'd been disappeared by the IRA. You know, at that time, other others had been disappeared as well. And that was done mostly because the embarrassment that, um, that follows when you know people un- are uncovered as being traitors to the cause and to cover that up. You know, they would they would uh, they would disappear them. Um, wow, so she okay. was one of the very first to be disappeared, but not the only one. Um, and then that that murder was the one that really drew all the attention. The the admission on, on that murder is the one that really drew all the attention to the tapes, correct? That was the one because yes. of the a, a, alleged orders given by yeah. you know, 
a high-ranking Irish politician, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, the um, the commander of the IRA in Belfast at that time was Jerry Adams, and um, according to the accounts that we got from various people, um, the decision to um, to disappear uh, Jim McConnell was taken at a meeting of three three top IRA men, one of, one of whom was um, was Jerry Adams, and um, the decision was to disappear her. And I think that was, I mean, I'm only guessing on this, on, on this particular point, um, but it does make a certain amount of sense that, uh, that the IRA in Divis Flats were so angry at the fact that she had gone back to informing when she'd be let off, yeah. uh, that they said, unless you do something like this, it's just going to encourage other people. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that was a very controversial killing. Um, the, the policeman in charge of the Royal Oscar Constabulary at the time, the, subsequently the police service of Northern Ireland, um, his father was killed in an IRA um, uh, car bomb. He had no love for Jerry Adams, no love for the IRA. Um, uh, he, he had a dog in the fight in that sense, right? Yeah. This is an opportunity to embarrass Jerry Adams and cause him a great deal of, of political trouble as well, you know. Um, and uh, it was, uh, again, a good opportunity for the police to make, because they had really ignored Jean McConville's case over the years. They hadn't bothered, done no investigation at all. Um, and so this was, uh, again, an opportunity for them to make them look a, a little bit better, you know. Right. And... Um... Did you did you directly interview Brendan Hughes or was it all through Anthony? McCormick? I know well there were I, I interviewed Brendan um, anonymously for my book uh, the secret history of the IRA okay yeah. um, but he was interviewed by Anthony McIntyre on record on tape uh, for Boston College. What what's the vibe like interviewing someone anyone not even talking about necessarily Brendan or, or whatever but someone who's, you know, to be a, a murderer, like, you know, it, is it, is it odd having a conversation? Are you able to put that? Depends how, it depends how you classify a murderer. murderer right, uh, right. I mean, right. I mean, oh, yeah. this, this is a, is a politician who, uh, like Tony Blair, is Tony Blair a murderer? Right. Um, if he, if he orders. Is, is, George, is George W. Bush a murderer? Right. No. Um, and I bet you don't get, Journalists being asked, "What's it like to interview a murderer like yeah. George W. Bush?" Right. Yeah. No. No. But sure. they have probably killed many, many more people than Jerry Adams ever has. Yeah. It's just with with the with these killings, it, it seems more personal. You know, it seems, uh, you know, that that it's it's more directly connected, right? Like you have George mm. Bush, who's given an order from a million miles away to of, send, of to send guys who, he, who he's never met in his life to kill Absolutely. people who he's never met in his life, where Absolutely, in, yeah. in, in this case, you know, you have someone yeah. like Brendan Hughes who, you know, or, or Jerry Adams, where you have to make the, the decision to kill a mother of 11, mm. but to not do it could be your, your very downfall and your downfall could be the downfall of your 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 battle for your country right i mean it's, uh, absolutely me it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a much more intense yeah 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 you know and, and maybe using the, the word murderer was wrong because i'm not judging it in that way i'm just saying to, you know to to talk to somebody who has has been in it like that you know and had to make those kind of heavy heavy decisions and, and those heavy actions you know that is really more what i was saying well, I mean, you're asking me, like, what's what's it like to interview him? It's like you interviewing me. It's really not much more different than that, you know? I mean, this is this is someone who's got a story to tell, and you want to um, get as much of the story as you can out of them, and, and you're really sort of thinking, am I asking the right questions here? Is there something I should have asked that I didn't ask? Um, but you don't get, you know, you don't get emotionally involved in the story. I mean, you can do that afterwards, you know, and uh, think about it, and, uh, you, you know, um, you, you know, there are things that will come back to you and what have you, but it's, it's, um, I, I never regarded it like that. I mean, I just saw everyone in the story as victims, right? Yeah. Everyone in that story is a victim and the victim of a history. Uh, and who's responsible? Was it Henry VIII that was responsible? Was he who started the plantations of Ulster, uh, uh an island? Uh, was it James, was it, was it his daughter, Elizabeth I? Was it the Stuarts? 
who really began the plantations, both in America and, and Ireland, um, are, the, are they as much to blame as Brendan Hughes? You know, uh, if you look at it from that point of view, um, and uh, I think if you do look at it that point of view, it becomes, you know, you do, you're just trying to find out the story. What's the story here? And it's a story like, you know, interviewing a pop singer about his life and who's he screwing and who he's not screwing, you know, and that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, it's it's really you know it's it's journalism and you 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 do what you can you're not sitting there making moral judgments who can make moral judgments you weren't there you know you didn't know what motivated people to join the IRA most people joined the IRA that I know and equally joined the loyalist paramilitaries who were just as as violent as the IRA um, for, because of things that had happened to them you know. Well, you know, and, th and that's what I was saying, you know, the weight of having to make a decision like that, right, to, mm. to, to have to do that, you know, you know, what's at stake versus, you know, what you have to, to live with is, is got to be just tremendous, tremendous amount of stress, you know, tremendous weight, you know, that's just why I just find it so interesting. And, you know, I, I found Brendan, his, his whole journey, um, you know, from, from start to finish to be, you know, heartbreaking almost and you know he ended up on almost on the outside at the end yeah. and yeah. to have yeah. to have jerry adams all these years deny yeah. even ever being in the ira when you know it's it's got it's got to be really heartbreaking and i really found the explanation of the prison system to be you know really valuable and interesting so like off camera here i have a mirror that was given to me as a gift when i was in belfast by an ira member um, and it was made in a jail. I guess the jail, the, the, yeah. the prisoners were allowed okay, to make, yeah. were, were allowed to make them to to earn some money for their families. And mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could just like tell the people who are going to watch this a little bit about what the political prisoner status was like. Well, uh, well, it was it was. Um, it's you know it's long been uh, a cardinal aspect of Irish Republican thinking that they're not criminals, they're not ordinary common criminals. They are soldiers. Uh, the only difference is that the people that they are fighting don't recognize them as soldiers. Um, but they recognize themselves as, as soldiers and as soldiers, they are prisoners of war. They are not criminals. Uh, and that's it very simply, you know. Right. Well, that's, uh, the best, that's the best way I've ever heard it described, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's it really. And so um, demanding that they be treated like prisoners of war. I mean, when 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 the Nazis um, captured Germans, uh, captured uh, uh, American or British troops, they didn't force them to wear prison uniforms. You know, they were allowed to wear their own uniforms. They were allowed to have their own command structures in these jails. They were allowed to organize their own food and stuff like that. Uh, and that's essentially what they were asking themselves, you know. Um, and it was not to do that, not to demand that would be to say, well, actually, we are criminals. And what we're doing here, we're just going out killing people. We're not doing this for a political cause. We're doing it for other reasons, you know. Right. So it's it's almost incumbent upon them to demand political status um, because it's a definition of who they are and why they're there and what why they did what they did to get themselves in jail. Gotcha. And so I, I meant to ask you this before. It kind of got a little bit, you know, topsy turvy here. So. What ended up legally happening with the tapes? How did the subpoenas play out? Did, did Boston College really fight it? Did you know? Oh no, this was this was. We were terribly let down by Boston College. I mean, they. It turned out that all the assurances that we got from them were were, were false. They were lies. Um, um, we believed them, and we. Sh I think we we're, we're at fault for believing them. We shouldn't have believed them. We should have been much more skeptical about it. Um, and not only that, but I mean, they just didn't fight, you know. I mean, I, I, had, been, I had been involved in, in a situation a few years before that, where Scotland Yard were in, had, sent over, had been sent over to investigate a series of killings in, in Ireland, um, very controversial killings. And I had interviewed at one stage, one of the people who was involved in the killings. And he had actually informed, he was also an informer, and he had informed his handlers in the police that this thing was going to happen, this particular murder, this murder of a man called Pat Fanukin, who's a lawyer uh, in Belfast, quite a famous, notorious killing. Um, and um, 
Yeah. Anyway, the, the Scotland Yard was sent over to investigate the whole thing, and they came to me and they demanded that I hand over my interviews with this guy, this, this uh, loyalist uh, informer, and I refused to do so on the grounds that I'm a journalist, not a policeman, you know. Uh, you go away and do your police work, and you, if you persuade him to tell, tell you what he told me, then good luck to you, but you're not going to get it from me. So I refused to hand them over, and we fought. And um, we eventually won that, eventually won that struggle, and the, 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 the courts in Northern Ireland threw out the, the, um, the subpoena from Scotland Yard. We expected um, Boston College to fight like hell against this thing, you know? Instead, no, they, I, we, I don't think we fully discovered the extent of their collaboration with the authorities. And I'm now at the point where I, I suspect that they were probably, they probably knew before we knew what was going to happen. Uh, and at every attempt at us, by us, to get them to move the tapes, to hide them, to do this, that, and the other, fight them, refused them, refused to um, fight them, uh, to refuse to hand them over, was um, was you know just rebuffed and ignored by Boston College. It was a it was a scandal, and we were told you know the 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 days when it was a story about the, the guy who was in charge of the law school in Boston College during the 1970s. It was a Catholic priest who actually stood for Congress and won a congressional seat on the anti-Vietnam War uh, platform. And he was in charge of their, their, um, their law school. And you contrast that now, right? And I was told what he would have done, he said he would have collected all the interviews and taken them up to his office, locked the door and challenged the authorities to come and get them and refused to hand them over. Instead, what we had was Boston College bad-mouthing us, undermining us because we were fighting all of this you know and we actually had to break from them in the end we broke away and, and had our own lawyers um they were they were they were spineless they were pathetic um they were everything that academic uh, uh you know purists should not be right they they collaborated with the state in destroying and handing over academic material which they had uh, guaranteed would be safe. I mean, it was a disgraceful episode in their history, and I, I hope they never recover from it. Well, it's it's ironic that you know you, you said that they they did this whole project to make up for their their indifference to you know the troubles as they happened, and then to even like go one worse. You know, it's like, hey, I'm sorry, I slapped you in the face. Let me give you a right cross. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. You know, like yeah. The, the total full circle yeah. on that yeah. is, is more than ironic, you know yeah. what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. And it was even worse. I mean, at one stage, um, uh, you know, the complaint, the, the, the complaint arose, which really, you know, annoyed me, which was that this is only, this is one-sided. They're only going for the, uh, the Republican side. Why don't they go for the loyalist side, you see? Um, and I was arguing against them, you don't do that. They don't go for any side. It doesn't matter whether they're loyalist or Republican. There's the principle is the same. And they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near these damn things. And the evidence as it's come out has been that Boston College behind our backs connived with the police in Northern Ireland to identify one of the loyalist interviewees so the police could then make an application for his interview, right? That's how bad Boston College were. And, and that, for, for what reason, do you know? Why? Because they're, because they're cowards, because they're about money. Uh, colleges these days are about making bucks and lots of bucks um, and they had no principles, you know? Um, yeah. and, and then I'm assuming, you know, you were the, the researcher, but they own the tape, is it because- they Oh yeah, of course they-, they Because they, they financed the project or- I would Well, they didn't, they didn't actually own the tapes uh, and, they, and they would never have owned the tapes until the interviewee had died. Once the interviewee died, then it became the legal property of Boston College. What they had was custody of the tapes, okay? okay. A legal custody meant that, you know, if the police, got the courts to say hand this over then they handed them over instead of instead of fighting and saying no we're not going to hand them over and make a big issue out of academic freedom out of it they could have come out of this heroes they may have lost at the end of the day but if they'd put up the fight people would have said well done boston college but now boston college is now by word 
for academic cowardice. Were those the only copies of the tapes? Uh, the the audio tapes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's tragic how that played out. You know, it's it's really, mm. yeah. I mean that that's that, that's really sad. You know, especially I mean you, you give someone an, a uh, a statement like that under the you know journalistic in, integrity, and mm. then it's not even the journalist you know who ends up being in, in charge. But that's tough, man. But um. At the end of the day, do you, you still think it was important, the right thing to do to make the tapes? Do you think it's still, do you, do you regret it at all? Do you, do you think that no, no matter how it plays out, this information is still equally as valuable as the original intention was to be? Well, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, these things are, are judged in, in, the long, in the long run, you know. Um, put it this way, it's, it's put a, bla a break on, on research like this, which needed to be done, you know. Uh, people are scared. I mean, there was never any chance of people doing this in Ireland or Britain because there was always the distinct probability that the authorities would find out and then move against them, you know? Um, what I find um, disturbing about the whole business is that those who were involved in neg negotiating the peace process, particularly on the Republican side, um, did never made an issue out of keeping this stuff sacrosanct and not, and not touching them. You know, not touching, in other words, allowing people uh, to uh, make and collect recollections of what took place in, in the Troubles. And that raises all sorts of very suspicious questions in my mind, at least, about why, why would they not want people to speak freely about what happened? Gotcha. All right. Well, you know, I won't take up your whole day. We're almost at an hour now, man. And okay. you know, I, I really appreciate you. Uh, are you working on any projects right now? Any books? Not, not really. No, I'm. I'm. What I'm doing at the moment now is I am um, creating and an, uh, trying. Well, I don't know. I will. I will. I won't say anything at this stage. No, I'm. I'm not. I do the odd bit of uh, journalism, but not much. Not much. Okay. And you have a blog that's thebrokenelbow.com. Yes, I, right? that, that keeps me writing. So that, that keeps me going. What, what's the bro just real quick? The name, the broken elbow. Where does that come from? Well, we know there's another film that you should see. As I think I've mentioned that to, one, two already. Yeah. Um, Voices from the Grave. Uh, there's another one called I Dolas, which is on Hulu. Hulu. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I saw it advertised. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very good. But anyway, during the making of um, of Voices from the Grave, uh, uh, those of us who were from America who were working on the film obviously had to go over there and live there and travel there. And I, I had a bad fall um, coming out of the elevator uh, one day. I'm disabled as it is. And anyway, I tripped and fell and smashed my elbow um, in numerous pieces so bad that they really couldn't do much about it. Um, and I had to come back to America and eventually got it uh, healed again by, uh, by luck and, and some good judgment on the part of, of doctors in a hospital for special surgery here in New York. So I called the, the, the blog The Broken Elbow after that. Tremendous. All right, great, man. Thanks for your time. And you know, no everyone checks out the books, The Secret History of the IRA and um, Voices from the Grave. You also have one about Ian Paisley, yeah? Yes, yeah, so yes, it's, it's called, um, it was just called Paisley. Okay. Yeah. Great, yeah. man. Ed, I hope you feel better. And I, I really, really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so my, much. My pleasure. Take All care right, now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye. This episode of The Shamrock Show was brought to you by Beard Octane. BeardOctane.com, at Beard Octane on all your favorite social media sites. Check out Beard Octane for all your men's grooming needs. Use code SHAMROCK10 for 10% off your purchase. BeardOctane.com.